1: The two of us always got blamed for eating buns. My mum would bake buns and things at the end of the week maybe and then the buns would suddenly go down in numbers so Brenton and I were always the ones who got blamed for having eaten the buns.
2: When he was disappeared, he was expecting the baby and, you know, things, new job, things were good for him at that stage. You missed that part uh, of developing a relationship with, with your brother. We found him on the 1st of October
3: last year, 2014. Through it all, and at the funeral and all, like, it was great seeing all their eldest thing I was missing with my mother. I'm sure sure it was a thing that, in the end, probably, you know, she died of a brain hemorrhage, and she was always worried about him and thinking about him.
4: At one level, you're recovering somebody who's been missing for 30 or 40 years in some cases... But at another level, it's it's a human being who was uh, presumably taken out onto that bog and murdered. The majority of the victims are only youngsters, are taken out presumably late at night, who knows. They're taken onto a bog, they stand standing in front of a hole and somebody shoots them, it's it's uh,
5: horrendous. He was one of life's characters, and unfortunately there's not as many of them about now. But uh, anybody that knew him will never forget him.
6: In October 2014, the remains of 22-year-old Brendan McGraw were located in Orristown Bog in County Meath, bringing to an end a long and painful search by his family, which lasted 36 years. On the 8th of April 1978, Brendan was abducted from his home in West Belfast, never to be seen alive again. This is the story of Brendan's life and subsequent abduction, and the impact it had on his family, recounted in their own words.
3: Sean McGraw, brother of Brendan. OK, well, we're standing here in the bridge. This bridge used to be called the Metal Bridge, but that's gone now. And we're looking down the railway line over towards where we used to live. Uh, it was an old farmhouse, two storeys. No running water, no electricity, no telephone. He had to pump the water in. And my grandfather had a farm about 30 acres. And it fields either side of the railway line. cattle. He had a horse. Hens. He tried ducks for a while, but the, the fox got to him one night, so he abandoned the ducks. When we were in our teens and that and younger, we used to help with the hay. That was a big job every summer, getting the hay in the ricks and things like that. Yeah, Brenton was only living here for a few months, but over the years, then like we would have come out regularly with our parents. I uh, would have, he would have come out sometimes on his own on the bus uh, to stay with my grandparents, and my grandfather would um, maybe kill a chicken then again, and he could have a nice dinner totally produced on the farm, like with the vegetables and the potatoes. So. Um, a lot of good memories about it out here, and uh, we had neighbours, uh who would we knew, and Brian had a donkey, and they'd come over with that sometimes, so it was happy memories of it. And then we had moved to Belfast, but like we'd come out here, i come out regularly, I'd cycle them sometimes, about 13 miles, 14 miles from Belfast, over the mountain.
1: I'm Deirdre Carnegie and Brendan McGraw's sister. When he was the youngest that I can remember really was we lived down in Owenvara in Belfast and we had um, a wooden floor in the hallway and to amuse ourselves sometimes he would probably be three or four and I was you know, five years older. We slid up and down, played sliding on the hall floor which was great fun. Probably helped mum as well because we polished the floor for it at the same time, doing it in our socks or on a piece of cloth or something. So that was good fun. He always liked to have a bike, so he probably had a bike from him. He could ride a, a two, two-wheeler two bicycle, and he was always out on his bike. He liked listening to music. Procar was his favourite sort of thing in later times. And our main thing was we, the two of us in the middle. Sean was the oldest, and then it was me, then Brenton, and Karen was the little one. So the two of us always got blamed for eating buns. My mum would bake buns and things at, a, at the end of the week, maybe, and then the buns would suddenly... Go down in numbers, so Brenton and I were always the ones who got blamed for having eaten the buns. One memory definitely I have is that when our dad died, I was thirteen, Brenton was eight. A neighbour kindly offered that Brenton could go and stay down at her house. She only lived a few doors from us. She had a few boys, so Brenton would have played with them anyhow. So he went down to stay there and afterwards when she was talking to Mummy after She said that she was totally amazed how neatly he'd folded all his clothes when he took them off at night to go to bed. He took each item off, folded it and put it on the chair, ready to be put back on the next morning. And she sort of said, I wish my boys could put their clothes as tidy as that.
5: My name's Tony McGraw and I'm Brendan's first cousin. I would have been seven uh, whenever we came from England. That was in 1969. Brendan and Kieran were both the uh, people that we would have had contact with, that were relatives whenever we came to the country first, and because Brendan was older than me, he was my big cousin that I looked up to. We would to go over to my auntie Bridie's to uh, visit, um, probably once every month, and it was a big occasion, big trip over, see my Aunt Bridie, who is a lovely woman, and uh, obviously the cousins get out and uh, have a bit of an adventure in a new place in town.
2: My name is Kieran McGraw and I'm Brendan's younger brother. Different things have been done. I can remember he, him sort of serving on the altar and, you know, he had, uh, was down at Cloners because he had went to primary school in St which is on down the Falls Road. So, I mean, he always seemed to enjoy that sort of side of things. Um lot of times he'd be, you know, trying to get me to get the shoes polished and whatever were. If I was out kicking the football, then obviously that was having an effect on the shoes, like so. Different different things to got, you know. Like he, Ben Sherman shirts and oxfords and the jeans. I probably wasn't at that stage of just wearing them, but you know he was sort of very fashion conscious. So, um, you just you wouldn't have touched him, like I showed you a picture earlier on at the right and the back ride, right, and he's sitting in the centre and sort of having a bit of you know crack or whatever. So he would initially be quiet within the group. Uh, but as they, they got to know him, um, he, he seemed to get on well. And, you know, as I was growing up, at times, oh, you, you know, you're Brendan McGraw's wee brother, or you look very alike. like. The night that Brenton's body were having a wake at the house, in, uh, at my home as such, one of his friends had come in and was telling the story about uh, when they were, when he lived at home uh, in my mum's house, Somebody was looking at light for the cigarette and the electric fire was on three bar electric fire and then no matches or lighter so they decided to get down and light the cigarette at the fire. So Brent had come back in the room, they'd noticed the mark on the, the electric bar and you know, started saying my mum's gonna crack up type of thing like so I'm gonna have to get that cleaned. So there was a companion set sitting beside the fire and he lifted the, the poker and started to scratch it but obviously hadn't turned the fire off at that stage, so there was an almighty bang, and he was through back against the settee in the wall, and, you know, the fire stopped working, plus all the guys were, you know, laughing their heads off, like, but, so I suppose maybe, what was it, 30 odd years I found out what had, what was the reason for the electric fire not working anymore, like, because at that stage, you know, I was a younger brother, and you wouldn't have been allowed in the room, and um, you just heard a sort of bang, but that sort of, Solved that problem anyway. Um, at different times we would have went maybe the swimming pool. Um, and one time I remember we went to the Grove Baths in the sort of north Belfast. And we got back to our change room and the mon- bus money was gone. So I don't know how I managed but he got talking to the manager. And got lend the money to get us the, the bus. We had to get a bus into town and then bus back up the Falls Road. We Had slightly different interests. He was in the motorbikes and bikes, whereas more enjoyed sort of herding or sport and diff- as such. So, you would have had this discussion, you know, if you're looking to get the TV turned over, and he'd be saying, No, we're watching the Grand Prix, and you so that's where the cars going around, their bikes around of the circle, and then he'd be arguing back, with the football, only kicking a wee ball. Well, we're
3: sitting in Nornbarra Park. Um, we moved here in 1955 from Glenavy, uh, and we were really looking forward to it because this place was going to have electricity, running water and a bath, which, you know, we didn't have in Glenavie. Um, so not that long after Brenton was born, I'd say, but we, like he was still in his early months. And uh, we moved here to Onbarra Park. Um, it was closer to work for Dad. He, he worked about three miles away in the Woodburn Hotel. With Chismond Park beside us. I used to love going up to the matches and things like that. And there was more people coming to visit us and stuff like that. It was really good. Brenton liked it because he had great fun. I remember one day, Mum had him out in the front garden, in his playpen, and Brenton started his early career of recklessness on the road. He pushed the playpen out of the garden got the front gate open, now he's only about two, got the front gate open and pushed the playpen out onto the road forcing a passing motorist to stop, who came in and alerted us to the fact that Brent was out on the road. Of course my mother near died, we all near died of shock to see the playpen out in the middle of the road. So that was Brent's first experience out on the road at the age of two. When he we got to the age of five, that was about 1960, he started going to school. He went to St Finian's School, that's down the Falls Road. He liked school then, uh, it was Brothers, De Brothers School. Well, I'm standing here now looking across at the porch in the house, and like it was a covered in porch, and she had a pram, I think it was one of them pedigree prams There were in those days. And it was the, the thing then that the child had to get plenty of fresh air. I remember Brenton being parked outside in the pram well wrapped up, but he had to have his hour or two out in the fresh air to keep him healthy. Um when we then left here that was about nineteen sixty two. Brenton was about seven years old. He was still at school obviously. But um we moved up closer to where Dad worked. We moved up to Stewartstown Avenue, which was only oh ...less than half a mile from the Woodburn House Hotel. 1962 we moved up here to Stewartstown Avenue. Uh, it was a brand new house. A new development. Um, we had great view from here out across the city. But um, I wasn't that keen on moving up here. We preferred to stay down in Owen um, It was closer to Casement Park and things like that and people I knew it was closer for dad to work so like he could drop home very quick there was no traffic problems he'd drive out of work and he'd be here in two minutes so uh, for for him that was important because he worked long hours being a chef now I'd only been here just over a year I had started working, I had left school I remember one morning I got a message in work mum was on the phone and she said that um, my dad she didn't think he was too I think the words I think he's dead so I come home dad was dead it was a terrible tragedy uh, for all of us but Brent in particular he was only what eight at the time This, 1963 August 1963 and uh, for him it was a big emotional thing for a long time after he, he was today they'd probably say behave near problems but it really upset him, the fact that he had lost his dad, and of course mom got upset because of that. And Hard times for us as well, because um, my dad had died and there was no wage coming into the house. Mam applied for the widow's pension, which wasn't very much, and we had a car out in the garage that had to be sold, and still a mortgage to be paid, so we all had to work a bit harder. I took another part-time job in the evening in the Woodburn Hotel where dad had worked they offered me nights and things like that um 1967 then brenton started going to secondary school the de la salle college down in uh, here in andersonstown he got on fairly well but brenton wasn't that keen on school i think at that age at all he liked doing the metal work he really loved anything creative with his hands he could do it but uh, the other business of learning wasn't his scene he finished up in school when he was 15. It was about 1970. I think mum, with her contacts, managed to get him a job as an apprentice chef or something in the kitchens in the Grand Central Hotel. My dad had worked there back in the 40s. But Brenton wasn't cut out to be a chef. he He got all the gear, the, the white coats and the trousers and the hat and all that stuff, but Wasted. he didn't last very long. But it was a very troubled time in Belfast. In fact I remember the day that internment was introduced there was no buses on the Falls Road. Brenton got the bus up the Lisburn Road, I got the train up the Balmoral station and both of us had walked up Town, Sorry, Stockmans Lane and we bumped into one another near the Andersonstown Road. We were going to go over and check on our grandmother who lived uh, in South Lincoln was there, an apartment, or flats as we call them, Belfast. And uh, just as we were about to cross the road there was shooting, started and Brenton and me had to lay down in the gutter up against the curb for protection. It was a frightening experience at the time, but when looking back on it, I mean, there had been so many shooting incidents around that time that it wasn't unusual. But um, we stayed there until it was safe to get up. And then we we went over to check on uh, my granny. She was okay. She was hard of hearing, which was probably an advantage in those days because you didn't hear half the the shooting or the bombs. So um, she wasn't the least perturbed about what was going on. (laughs)
5: My friend and I were both into motorcycles, and uh, we spent a bit of time, let's say, travelling around the country, uh, country lanes on our motorcycles. We would also have met in uh, in town, and did what normal young men do in town, and we were quite fond of doing a bit of squash, and uh, Maysfield Leisure Centre was the main place for us for that. And we spent many, many times down there playing squash, having a bit of a sauna and what have you afterwards. And I wouldn't say squash was a huge part of his life. It was something that we did because it was something different and we were trying to broaden our horizons (laughs) and stay a little bit fitter than what we we maybe were. There'd been four of us down. We'd uh, had the usual game, retired in, had uh, a glass of orange up in the canteen. I suppose still 20 minutes later, Brendan hadn't emerged from the changing rooms he was still down there grooming himself and making sure every hair was in place and his shoes were still shined unlike me I was very through all he was meticulous in what he did uh, to the point that sometimes he'd even iron in a crease into his jeans which was a bit a bit strange at the time his shoes were mirrors all the time polished to perfection hair if you find a hair to place on his head you would have been looking very closely I was doing a welding course in the training centre and Brendan was doing an engineering course. So we met very regularly through the day and whenever we needed bits and pieces done for our motorcycles, we would rely on each other to do them. I needed a set of rear sets done for my motorcycle, he needed a bit of welding done for handlebars on his. So those are the sort of things that we were able to help each other out with. About
3: 1975, I think Brenton went down looking for work, or probably somebody had told him there was work available down in Limerick he went down there, he was working in a factory, I'm not sure, I can't remember what type of factory but he was getting good work there and he wrote home one time to Mam. he said he'd been going in an hour early every morning he was getting double time for that and he also asked her to post down his motorbike helmet because he had Bought a new one off some fella and he had paid him £5. But part of the bargain was that he was to give this fella his old helmet. Now, how Mam would have managed to post a motorbike helmet, I don't know. Uh, he just asked her to do it. That was the Brenton, <laughs> I everything mean, was straightforward to him. <laughs> Brenton stayed in Limerick, I think, for about a year. I reckon he came back about 1976. And a short time after that, he met Marie around 1976. In uh, 1977, Brenton got married to Marie. Uh, the wedding took place in St Matthias's Chapel on the Glen Road. um there was a big lot of family and friends there. Um, but unfortunately, the one person missing was um, Brent and his dad. His uncle Matt was there. Um, he, he was really happy then. I remember him going off in the car. I think they went to Dublin for their honeymoon. Uh, yeah, pretty sure it was Dublin who went for the honeymoon. And he looked really happy going off. And then the following year, uh, Marie was pregnant everybody was looking forward to having a daughter Brenton unfortunately he lost his job in the carpet factory he got a position in a, a training course but didn't pay much money so I knew the chief engineer on the ship and uh, he was looking for a replacement for his motorman. man. So he gave Brenton uh, a week's trial. Went down to Warren Point. Brenton joined the boat. Then, because of a, this was because of a strike in Belfast, the boat came back to Greenore. Uh, I picked Brenton up that day and drove him home. We stopped in the pub in O'Meath on the way home and I had a pint. That was the last time I remember having a drink with Brenton. That was around... I think about the end of March. Can't remember exactly, but that was 1978, uh, and that was pff, might have been the last time I seen him. Certainly, was the last time I had a drink with him, and he was really happy. And his week's trip had gone well. And later that week, I spoke to the chief engineer, and he said he was going to get Brenton the job, which was great news, uh, because the job would have paid well. Okay, it'd have been away from home for a while, but it was good money. A well, it would have stood to him like we went for other jobs. And uh, unfortunately then, the 8th of April arrived and Brenton went, to, went from us.
2: At the minute we're sitting outside the flat where Brenton was taken on the 8th of April 1978, and it's strange, you know, it's the first time I've been back here since he's actually been found and brought back to Belfast. Um, at different times you would have come up and it was sort of, well it still is painful memories but you're where now we have got um, got his body back when Breton had left early that morning to go and meet mum in town um, and Marie was in the flat and she had heard the knock at the door, she actually thought it was Breton coming back, you know maybe forgot something Uh, but when she answered the door then eight or nine men had come in and they asked her a couple of questions and then they drugged her Given an injection and that sort of made her drowsy whatever and they put her in the the bedroom and then you know just they waited on Brenton coming back when he had been in town he had he'd got the radio with my mum and then he had decided to leave her in town and then come back up home to Trimbeck.
3: Brenton then came home and he walked through the door he was sat upon by these I think it was up to nine men were in the apartment And they took him away. My wife Kay had gone over to Brendan's apartment uh, to meet Marie, that's Brendan's wife. Kay had her sister Margaret with her. Uh, They went over to his house in Twinbrook. And uh, Kay came back much earlier than I expected. And she broke the news to me that uh, somebody had come to at Brenton's apartment and taking them away I mean it took me a while to take it in and what she meant start started asking her loads of questions so anyhow I drove over picked up Ciaran and went on over to Brenton's and I met there I met Marie and I met um, Marie's mammy and stuff like that and learnt that um, these men had come to the house while Brenton was out He'd gone into town with his mother, uh, the bar radio, and uh, when he came home, these guys who had tied up Marie uh, took Brenton away. As Brenton left the house, uh, he said, Don't worry, I'll be back, I haven't done anything. And Marie said, like, Will he be back? And they they told her that he'd be back, but they never, never came back. Uh, Now, Marie had been injected and Marie was pregnant. She was about three months pregnant. And uh, they had warned warned Marie not to contact the police. Uh, So we didn't know what to do. Marie was pregnant. She'd been injected. We didn't know what with. What should we do? We waited for an hour or two and then we decided, look, we're going to have to get a doctor. The doctor came and we discussed things with him and he said, really... She so would need to go to the hospital to be checked out for take tests and things like that, because he couldn't tell what, what had happened to her. So Marie was taken off to the hospital, and uh, I then went down to Dunmorey Police Station to report that Brenton had been taken away, abducted. I uh, didn't get a great reception in the police station. Um uh, but after a while they calmed down and I told them exactly what had happened so there was a follow up but it never yielded any results Mom did radio and television appeals newspaper carried the story from and Marie did reports did appeals on television newspaper interviews I went and spoke to people I thought might know something all came to no avail. Nobody seemed to know anything, as if he had just disappeared from earth.
5: I was meant to meet Brandon at four o'clock uh, at the uh, Boucher Road, uh, with a view to staying with him. It was meant to be the weekend, but obviously Brandon was heading off the following day. So uh, he didn't turn up uh, for obvious reasons. Now, um, I had just finished work and was standing there waiting for him. He never showed up. So I walked up the road to his mother's house and that's when I was given the news that he had been abducted. He was one of the light's characters and unfortunately there's not as many of them about now. But uh, anybody that knew him will never forget him.
1: I was living over in England and I was told that he had been taken from his flat. He was taken on the Saturday. I received a phone call on the Monday following that from... My older brother Sean's wife, Kay, she phoned to tell me because it was going to be on the national news, on the television. So that was obviously a shock.:
5: A lot can happen in the next three years, like a chatbot, maybe your new best friend, but what won't change? Needing health insurance, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times.
0: Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at Burrow.com Acast. And up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at Burrow.com Acast. But at the time, it was uh,
1: obviously a, a total mystery as well because we didn't know... Who had taken him or why?
2: After the initial time that he was taken, she would have she'd done an appeal on TV. she travelled down to Dublin. she travelled to Limerick, you know, different places and just asked about, and did anybody know anything or whatever. Um, and I think many of the mothers did do that uh, and went to different places and sort of tried to find out any information. So I would say many of the mothers, have, the ones that were disappeared, had went to various places to see if they could find out. You no, know, I suppose maybe after a couple of months, maybe, um, I think one of the bikes were there, and she'd um, maybe got that, one of the friends, to maybe look after it, and type of thing. But I, I suppose it was always difficult, because he was so particular about the bike. Um, you know, he would, if the bike was in the garage, you would say, don't touch it, or... Um, so, she, she obviously wouldn't. But, you know, at times, then, she felt... She was sort of, you know, caught in between. I think that was, that was probably one of the traumatic things for her. Like, if it, you know, if I get rid of this, that's a memory gone um, for for her as such. Like. And, you know, and he had his own room and stuff, so she would have maybe packed up some of the clothes. But the, the clothes and that, and she kept a lot of mementos, uh, you know, maybe cards that he'd sent her at Christmas or Mother's Day. And she would have, you know, kept them in it. Sort of neatly in a couple of boxes and that, and you know, all all that sometimes gets lost in the story that the anguish and the pain that those the parents had, had went through. Um, you know, like if you lose a child in the supermarket for a couple of minutes, you're panicking like so. This was a thing that never left them. Like, well, so probably the initial part or the first couple of years, you didn't actually know um, that he was dead. You know, there was different stories going about. You've seen. In Canada, America, Australia, England, wherever it may be, um, but he, there was never any substance to, to that. Like, and you sort of you always hoped that he would come back, but I said before, Brenton was very attached to him. Well, any time he was away, before he always would have either phoned or you know sent a letter. Um, so I suppose that part of it was you know surprising. Um, and it, you know it's. Probably' you're saying years, but you know days and months had ran on, and you're always hoping that he would come back, but after a period of time you know, that was seventy eight you know maybe five six years you were thinking he's not gonna you know he mustn't be coming back, but he didn't necessarily think he was dead. I don't know if that sounds strange, but um you're sort of wondering he's somewhere else, but uh, as it transpired, he wasn't somewhere else. Um, he was actually dead so with mid 90s and whatever different, wave group or the families that disappeared had met up and mum had went to some of those uh, meetings and they had masses and they were starting to raise publicity as such about the case and they were finding there's other people in the same uh, same scenario as such and then uh, April 1999 we got word Uh, the IRA had taken Breton, had killed him, disappeared him and that his name would be on a list that would be released and we would find out where the body was. So obviously that was a major shock that they would come out and said they had killed him, whereas before when questions were asked nobody had knew anything about it. You know we tried all around the different groups or whatever. Uh, Police knew nothing about it, couldn't give any information so it was nineteen eighty nine. We thought it would just be a matter of weeks to we find his body. We were told it was in Norristown in County Meath, so near Kells. So we knew where Kells and Alpham was, but no didn't know where Orstown was. And it was a surprise that the he was sort of down south as such. And okay. the same case for most of the disappeared. So we you know, we took Mom down to the site and again that was very traumatic for her. Um and we were showing where he was supposed to be uh, buried. But it turned out, you know, after the first dig, it was unsuccessful. There was another dig the following year, and again that was unsuccessful. So the waiting in between, waiting for the phone call, sort of, uh, was a very difficult period for everybody. Because if the phone rang, you were thinking, oh, maybe somebody's found. Or, and then, if the digs were unsuccessful, you know, your hopes were diced.
3: died in 2002 and it was 1999 before we knew for definite she found out that um, Brenton had been killed. That's when he was on the list of those who had been disappeared. So from April 1999 until January 2002, which is almost four years, um, she was praying and hoping that she, he would be found I mean she'd been down at Orristown and seen the digs finished and no sign of him so it was very sad for her Like, I can imagine now like, if I lost one of my sons what would be like so it must have been terrible like, especially losing her husband Dan, two children who had died like, when they were very young Gerald was about three months and Joseph I think was about a week so it was a tough time for her
2: I mean, it was very difficult for Marie at the time. Um, she was expecting uh, the baby was due in October, and you know she was dealing with the loss, sudden loss of her husband. Didn't know where he was coming back or you know what was happening. And so it was probably all the uncertainty that she had to deal with. It w- was very difficult. Um, and then hopefully we we're hoping then that the baby wouldn't be affected. So. Thankfully, that didn't happen, and she was born healthy. And so, you know, it's, she had you know an awful lot to deal with over the years. yeah. and you know, sort of every time it probably come back up in the news, it would have brought a lot of that back for her. You know, it was a big, a big loss. And then at Christmas time, or you know, different family events were going on. You were sort of thinking, well, what if he was here, or you know, and would he have had any more children and all that type of stuff. So. And mum, sort of, she would have worked hard, I don't know if that's the right term, but, you know, tried her best, maybe, is the term, you know, to try and keep everything as normal as possible for what was happening the rest of us and what was happening in the rest of our lives. But, you know, inside she was going through a lot of trauma and pain, like. So for a long, long period of time after that, there wasn't really, after some had disappeared were found, there wasn't really much happening. And then... um. The, sort of the commission had met with the families and the families were trying to get something more done and, and Jeff Nuffler was appointed and um, I think it was 2006 and, and so we were concerned that the information from previous digs would be lost so there was no central uh, place for somebody to go And if information did come back where would you go to find out what war had been dug or what sort of records existed uh, so that was one of the things we wanted to get in place. And we started to meet other politicians and different governments, and that's what we tried to push the thing forward. Um, so after a couple of years, some more of the bodies were found. Um, there was another dig for Brenton again. It was unsuccessful, which was very disappointing. You know, at one stage, you were thinking, would we ever get him back?
4: This is LMFM. Good afternoon, I'm Michael Carlin. Human remains have been found at Orristown Bog near Kells at the site where searches have been carried out for the body of Brendan McGraw. The discovery was made when contractors working for the Independent Commission for the Location of Victims' Remains were clearing a drain at the site in preparation for further work.
2: The recovery was And then, on the 1st of October 2014, 2014, we got the call they'd been found. So it was just. Um, weren't really expecting the call just on that day. It was uh, just unbelievable to think that actually, after all this time, they had found him. And he was in between, sort of, where the second and third dig had been. But it was great to get him, you know, back, go and get him, get him back up to Belfast.
4: My name is Jeff Nutfer. I'm the head of the investigation team for the Independent Commission for the Location of Victims' Remains. I was invited over in 2005 by the commission and the two governments to review what the commission had done prior to that date since its establishment after the, as part of the Good Friday Agreement. Uh, my role now is uh, as, as lead scientist for the commission but also head of the investigation team. So I've got a team of investigators who, who do all the background research and work and then obviously we have a, a group of uh, archaeologists and other experts who, who carry out the searching, physical searching. I prepared a report for the governments and the commission in 2005 that was presented to them all in 2006 and shortly after that I met all the families in in one at one point or another and you know they're all tragic tragic cases they're all terribly sad cases Um, but particularly struck I can always remember meeting uh, the two McGraw boys who I met first and foremost Kieran and Sean they have always been understanding thoughtful they've never made demands upon me or the commission more generally. They've just been tremendous and stoical. You know, they they are very kind, very considerate, and understanding, really, of the, of the pressures and the difficulties that we uh, we have to encounter in in the, in the course of the job we do. Well, I, I think for everybody, it, it's, it's elation uh, tinged with terrible sadness. You know, at one level, you're recovering somebody who's been missing for 30 or 40 years in some cases... Uh, but at another level, it's it's a human being who was uh, presumably taken out onto that bog and murdered, um, and, th- and that is a terrible, terrible thing to do. You know, you think that poor lad has has been there. Uh, uh, the majority of the victims are only youngsters, are, are 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 taken out presumably late at night. Who knows? And uh, uh, you know they're they're taken onto a bog. They're standing in front of a hole, and somebody shoots them. It's it's horrendous. It really is. So th- this sadness at one level, but absolutely. You know, elation at, at at having achieved what we set out to do and months and months, even years of work gone into recovering Brendan and we found him. We try not to get emotionally involved because it doesn't help, actually, but inevitably you do. And when you meet the family and, and particularly with Brendan, because, you know, if you look at photographs of him, he, he's he's absolutely a spitting image of his brothers. They are very, very, you know, the the, the their facial features are very similar. And you can only just imagine that he was probably as charming a guy as they are. Uh, and it's, it's awful. It's, it's terribly, terribly sad. And, you know, for somebody to leave the house or to be taken from the house, as he was, uh, taken from the home and just disappear off the face of the earth, it's just absolutely horrendous. It really is. It's appalling. And, uh, you know, your heart goes out to them, really. And, and of course, his mum and dad who, who weren't here to see him, uh, see him brought home. We're not remotely interested in who killed the individual, we are concerned wholly and solely with identifying that individual. The state pathologist wants to know how somebody was killed. So we're all doing slightly different things, but none of us are looking to who killed that person because our legal remit, the law prohibits us from doing that. We're just there wholly and solely to recover, repatriate and obviously identify. I would ask anybody who has any information, whatever any thoughts on it, please, please do contact the Commission. Whatever you have, it could be just the last little piece of the jigsaw. So please don't think, oh, well, it's only trivial, it's rubbish. Please let us be the judges of that. Uh, the other really important factor here is that the legislation under which the Commission operates is le- dual legislation. So it's in, it operates both in uh, Ireland and Northern Ireland and the UK. And that prevents us from passing that information on to anybody else, any government, any a- government agency, it can only be used wholly and solely for the recovery and repatriation of uh, the, the disappeared.
3: Um, a recollection I have is that um, when I was at secondary school, uh, I was very lucky to have as our English literature teacher, a certain Mr Seamus Heaney, and uh, even at that stage he was very interested in poetry and stuff like that, and remember that he he was very good even then with words like he'd be describing things like digging and he'd talk about people clearing shucks and he'd describe the sound of a spade coming out of wet ground and big bogs and things like that When when we discovered that Brenton was buried in Norristown uh, I just thought of him and I could see him on television I always thought I'd love to get a chance to talk to him and maybe give us a poem or something like that we could associate with Brenton. but um, it's just funny like those words he used about the bog and digging like became so so relevant uh, later on in my life. standing here at the spot where Brenton was found it's an Town bog and I just noticed now it's the first time I've been here since he was found and the spot is marked by two large stones one on top of the other and uh, the four trees around the site as well and stones around it it's a a nice reminder but a reminder of very sad Event when Brenton was shot here, but then we found him on the first of October, last year, 2014. It was a very ordinary day for me. I was just getting up, getting ready, and I prepared to go out for a bit of a walk, and the phone rang, and uh, it was Sean Hill. I think he said I've a bit of good news for you, and I thought he was ringing to say that you know they started the dig uh, because they've been doing a lot of prep prep work, I don't think the actual main part of the day got started so um, when he said good news for you, and he asked is anybody with me there so I said yeah, and when he started to say that I thought he's going to tell me something and he said we found your brother and uh, I couldn't answer for a while so it was good news but it was still a shock still a shock, never thought that we'd get that that phone call, the one you've been thinking about and what will they do and what will they say and all that, but don't think I said very much. I through it all and at the funeral and all, like you know, it was great seeing all their elders. I think I was missing was with my mother. I'm sure I'm sure it was a thing that in the end probably you know, she died of a brain hemorrhage and she was always worried about him and thinking about him. she'd been here yeah a few occasions and uh, she was here the first first time she came here my stepfather was with her he was very ill then he had cancer and I think he died that, that same year but she came come back a couple of occasions uh, with my sister and also I was here the very last time she was here I think it was about 2001 I was here with her and uh, Kay, myself Angela from WAVE a local priest and I think the superintendent from the guards in Navin was there. Said a few prayers but it was very sad, very gloomy. You know, the search had stopped and we felt they weren't gonna do any more. So there wasn't much hope. There wasn't much hope at that stage. And at the time my mum died, like there was nothing really in the air about it at all. Like should Got a support from people, and you know, even the time I brought her down to Dublin, and we met John Wilson and the Commission up on Stephen's Green. Like, it was great for her because she felt that was the first time somebody was actually listening to her. Uh, another big occasion before that was when uh, she'd met President Clinton in Belfast. We met several of the relatives that disappeared, and it was nice meeting him. It was. Thirty-six years. That it, uh, it was. It was a Tuesday that he was found. It was time we got down here. It was the afternoon, and then we we're waiting on my sister and my brother coming down. So it was late in the evening, and they had decided not not to take Brenton away f- f- to do some other work and you know check the site over and stuff like that. So it was Tuesday, m- uh, the Wednesday morning before he was he was taken away, and uh, so he lay overnight here but um, as we left there was just one light and that was I think it's the old lighthouse uh, from up near Kells so it was the only light you could see, it was a very lonely spot, you can imagine all them years down here really from once Brenton was up and out of the ground and they took him off the next day to uh, the Morgan, Dublin, Dublin, like we, we followed behind for uh, beyond Navin and uh, guard escort motorbike and that which would have suited Brenton down the ground and uh, after that then we just waited for a word but we were pretty sure it was Brenton once we got the DNA confirmed it took about six or seven weeks but that was okay we felt confident.
2: We went down on the 1st of October I waited the dirty come over from England and then we, we headed down done. And we, we got the site just before sort of twilight as such. But as we were standing sort of saying prayers and you had a look around, I mean, there was no light. Um, and you sort of thinking, well, that's, you know, maybe that was his last recollection. He was obviously, we would have been disorientated, didn't know where he was and thinking that he would never get home. You know, that was one of the things that drove you on, that you wanted to, you know, get a spot and get him back home. And so that, that he wouldn't be forgotten as such. You know, if if we hadn't got his body back and you're always going down to the site and saying, well, he's here somewhere, and it meant that when you left out, there was always the frustration that you knew he wasn't coming with you. So all of that is now gone, and that, you know, that's why it's a massive that you're hoping and praying that we can get the rest of the bodies. Since we find found his body, you can, you know, as a sort of... The realization or calmness or freedom that you know that, okay, we've got his body back. And, you know, that, that is a massive thing. The You know, the difference is really unbelievable to think um, that he's not lying in a bog. He's now, you know, is in the grave with his mum and dad and his brothers. And he, he's at peace and, you know, has peace for us as well. So you're looking for that. For the other families that disappeared, and um, because you know the, there's always a lot of questions of why and where for of why it was taken, but the, the target for us was to you know sort of get him back home. And the uh, the day of, like was it, the 12th of November, we went to Dublin uh, to you know be able to bring his body back into Belfast. That was tremendous, ah, uh. oh, just unreal. Um, it's still you know, emotional. But as you come close to Belfast, it was just thinking, well, we finally finally got him home. Um, and then you come back up into Stewart's town, you passed that on the way up. And then we had to wake and that for him. Because, like, when they were disappeared, it was just, everything just stopped to a certain extent. Obviously your own life and that had continued on, but that part of your life had just stopped. And you, you sort of Hoping then that that can, if somebody listens to this radio program, that somebody will come forward that has that wee bit of information, because it was it was the final bit of information that actually led to Brenton getting found.
3: We're just leaving the village of Glenavy Nine, heading out the Achillie Road towards uh, St Joseph's Chapel. That's the old railway bridge there. And uh, I used to walk this route. Sometimes to school. Most time we got lifts, but occasionally we had to walk it. <laughs> Didn't think twice about walking these distances at that time. Sometimes used to take shortcuts through the fields. When you think of it now, like seven and eight year olds taking shortcuts across the country to be become the police if you done that now. wee river used to be here used to fish for spricks again on the way home (laughs) now we're coming up chapel hill and just before you come to the top is the entrance to the graveyard this is st joseph's chapel it's always lovely here well kept We've just arrived at the graveyard now and we're walking over to the grave. It's a beautiful day, you can see down towards the lock. When I come back to the grave now it's it's not it was always sad, it still is sad, but when you'd come here you used to you'd be thinking of Brenton and where he was, you know. So a certain relief now. It's not easy but it's better than it was just looking at the headstone now it's got Robert Joseph McGraw who died 6th of August 1963 and his sons Gerald and Joseph who died in infancy and also his wife her loving mother Bridget, Nee Russell who died 8th of January 2002 and then it says and their son Brendan born the 20th of May 1955 and disappeared the 8th of April 1978 and we intend to add to that very shortly recovered from Oristown Bog 2014 led to rest here November the 14th and the final words on the headstone are we miss you all I could still it's always sad when you come up to a grave, but it's nothing like what it used to be because we used to come here and you'd read those words and you'd be thinking, How long we I going to have to wait before he's recovered? So, at least, like you know, it's now we're like anybody else coming to the graveyard, you know, you know, the names on the headstone, the bodies are all there. Like, we would use we a headstone and we didn't have a, the name of one of those people. One of the bodies wasn't here so if we've completed that part of it and like mom remarried uh but like her instruction was to be buried here and uh, she always hoped well she'd hoped it should have brenton buried before her but um certainly like we wanted to make sure that after she died that brent was brought here and he slayed the rest with her so uh, from that point of view like it's satisfaction it's still sad you can probably hear my voice but um, it's a lot better than what it used to be when you used to leave here be very sad so like we know and his daughter's been here and it's just a sense of completion mm-hmm. and uh, it's a much nicer place than Oristown Bog ever was
6: The McGraw family, while enduring 36 years of heartache and uncertainty, received some closure when Brendan's remains were located. Sadly for some of the other families of the disappeared, the search continues. There are people who have yet to come forward with information that could lead to the recovery of the remains of those individuals who are still missing. If you have any information that can help in the search to locate the remaining disappeared, Please call the Commission's confidential free phone line on 00800 555 zero zero eight zero zero treble five eight double five zero zero.
0: This documentary was
3: researched and produced by Ailey Sheehy with thanks to the McGraw family and the Independent Commission for the location of victims' remains.